Thank you for listening to our Celebration Sermon Podcast. Celebration is a worshiping community within Heart of White Ministries. We gather at 9 a.m. in the Red Brick Church Building on the Heart of White Campus on the corner of 160th and Lakewood in Holland, Michigan. We invite you to join us in person when you are able. To learn more about our Celebration community in Heart of White Ministries, please visit heartofwhite.com. This morning, as we work through 10 particular topics this fall about what it means to think like Jesus, you know, ideas have consequences. Boy, could I talk about that right now. Bad ideas have bad consequences. The ideas of God, as they shape our thinking and our perspective, as they then lead to behaviors, God ideas have God consequences. And so we want to live into that. We've been week by week looking at a different key biblical principle. This week I want to look at compassion and what that means. And so for the text, part of the reading you would have had in this week's chapter in the book Believe, I want to look at the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, just before the event that we'll hear in the Scripture, Jesus has sent out 72 of his followers. He sent them out two by two to declare the kingdom of God and who he is and the good work he's doing. And they've come back and they've debriefed. So he's extended the ministry to the next level of leadership. You see the kind of the model of how to have disciples who make disciples who make disciples. This is even before the death and resurrection. And now, by the grace of Jesus, they've talked it out, debriefed, done their after action, and someone comes to him with a question. Now, out of respect and appreciation for the word, I'm going to ask you to join me and stand as you're able and listen to the word of God as recorded for us in Luke chapter 10 and verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? The expert in the law answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, this expert in the law, so he asked Jesus a question. Well, who exactly is my neighbor. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, oh, As he traveled, he came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds and poured on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey. He brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. The next day, he took two small coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now... Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, well, the one who had mercy on him, Jesus said to him, now go 
and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated. And let's turn to the Father and pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for the way Jesus engages this expert in the law, that in the midst of the going out of the good news, there's placed this story about an encounter with a person seeking to inherit eternal life. And Jesus engages him, and yet in ways that may well surprise us. So we thank you that uh, Luke, the physician, recorded this. He would have gotten it from the eyewitnesses that were there, he said. And that these texts have been carefully, amazingly, in many ways, preserved for years, centuries, so that now we can open them, translate, pray, meditate, study. And in the midst of this Holy Spirit, I ask that you uh, continue your work begun there with Luke. Now, illumine to our hearts and minds the good news of the gospel that we might grow in the fullness of your calling and bear fruit. Guard your people from my own um, confusion and brokenness, but together we set our eyes to see Jesus, our hope and our Savior, and we make our prayer in his name. And all of God's people said together, amen. Amen. I want to start this morning with what I'm going to call a family story. And the family with this story is actually the church of Jesus. You know, I believe that because of what Jesus did on the cross for me and for you and for all people, that by faith we can respond to that grace and be deeply loved, fully adopted children of the great creator king. We can be family. So let me tell you some family history about the church. When things got started way back at the beginning, think book of Acts chapter 1, the church was essentially powerless and persecuted, hated by the structures of the world. Who are these people who don't bow the knee? But the church kept growing and kept spreading and kept crossing cultural boundaries from Jerusalem to Judea, then to Samaria, those people, and then even to the Greeks. All around, it began to spread. After about three centuries, almost 20% of the Roman Empire were disciples of Jesus. Then a first ever development in the history of the church. The emperor became a believer. Now, this emperor was named Constantine. Um, interesting story about he, how he came to faith, but he used his position to then stop official government persecution of the church. And he tried to live out his faith from that position of power. First ever in history. Did some things well, some things not so well. Another story. But after 30 years of that, Constantine did what every emperor and ruler has ever done. He died. <laughs> and after a short transition, Constantine's nephew took over as emperor, Julian. So three centuries in from powerless to Emperor Constantine, and now another shift with Julian. And Julian was a tough guy. He was a backslider, raised as a Christian. He deconstructed his faith. We remember him as Julian the Apostate, and he tried to undo the church and the work of his uncle. He was committed to restoring classic Greek and Roman paganism. 
So he tried to undermine the church in that way. But you know what he set out to undo most of all that he thought was at the core of the life of the church? He tried to undo the works of charity. You see, we're not sure what that is. I'm sorry, sorry, it's just best to, oh, is this a battery? You know, it's just best to talk and get this stuff done. Um, So this is what Julian the apostate, Julian the backslider tried to do. Undo the works of charity that marked the life of the church. In many regards, philanthropy and charity has its roots in the early church. Nothing existed among the early Romans or Greeks like this. Listen to this fascinating quote from Julian. The impious Galileans, that was his term for Christians, they support not only their own poor, but ours as well. All men see our people lack aid from us. So that was the rap on the church about three centuries after Jesus. We took care of all the poor, including the poor of other religions. Shortly after this, we begin developing medical centers. These sorts of things flourished and flowed. Now, the story isn't always good. If, if you really want to dig in, I'm reading a great book called Bullies and Saints. It's by an Australian by the name of John Dixon. And he's got a chapter on um, Constantine and a chapter on Julian. And he has a very insightful chapter on what was going on about seven centuries later when the church was not doing real well. We call those the Crusades. And that was a bad season of the church living out the gospel. But at first, care for the poor was so much an expression of the people of Jesus that when an emperor wanted to undo the work of the church, that's what he went after. Isn't that interesting? How unique and different. Friends, I want to tell you, compassion is related and grows out of the very character of the Lord. And I've capitalized the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Those of you who are regular at Hardawike know that in the Old Testament, that points to the divine name of God, the specific name that God gave to Moses in the burning bush, Yahweh the Lord. It's part of the character of that God, not many others. That God. If you dig into the Hebrew scriptures, you'll come across the word mercy in the King James often, but mercy and compassion. It's who God is. Psalm 145. I'll just, there's too many to look at all together, but I'll give you this one. The Lord is gracious and compassionate slow to anger and rich in love, compassion and anger, mercy and kesed, the, the covenant love that he, God has. It's who he is, not just what he does when he feels like it. It's who he is. In Nehemiah, the nation of Israel, God's people, has returned from the Babylonian captivity. They're rebuilding the temple and the wall of protection around Jerusalem. And they have a worship service and a time of corporate confession. Nehemiah um, 9.17, listen to what they say. 
They, that is our ancestors, refused to listen and they failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion, see that's a heart condition, in their rebellion they appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. Oh, that's interesting. But you, O Lord, are a forgiving God. You're gracious and compassionate, merciful. You're slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. It's who God is, and that's what he does. So we see in the Hebrew scriptures, the character of God is mercy. We see too a unique thing. If you look at the religions of the time, the character of God, both justice and righteousness. A lot of interest these days in the issue of justice. And I've heard people take the words of Jesus, you know, uh, blessed are the, the righteous for they shall inherit. Blessed are those who are righteous. And they want to change that word to blessed are the just. In Hebrew, God is always, because of who he is, bringing those together, justice and righteousness. If you know God, you know both. If you only know one, you've truncated who God is. Listen to Amos uh, 5.21. He begins a long statement. I'll just hit the highlights. This is the Lord speaking through the prophet Amos. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Oh, happy worship planning, Bill. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Amos 5, 23, 24, a little further down. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never failing stream. See, in the Old Testament, they're both together. You lose one, the other falls off. And why is that? It's because God himself is the embodiment of justice and of righteousness. You can't separate the two. Righteousness, the right relationship with God is what it means for us, but justice, the right relationship among people. For us as believers, those things are inexorably linked and they're always the expression of who God is and him at work. Mercy, in the Latin, the word compassion that was used there is a compound word, to suffer with. No one has compassion from a distance. Compassion is when you are with a person in their circumstance. As a college student, I studied urban anthropology. I understood the dynamics of the inner city, but as a ministry student, Mary Lynn and I moved into the neighborhood in Holly Grove in New Orleans. By living in the neighborhood, their life was inexorably tied with our life and we became life together. It's moving in and suffering with. It's not observing and sending. It's my resources joined with another. It's the expression, if you will, in the New Testament of the incarnation. Jesus is the word made flesh. God didn't just sit on the throne and say, I'll send you some laws, you better behave. He said, your brokenness and need is so deep, I'm gonna join you. And joining you, I'm gonna carry your burdens. And joining you and carrying your burdens, I'm going to the cross to set you free. That's the gospel. 
It's about suffering with, it's about incarnation. I love the way Eugene Peterson, the translator of the message, terms John 1.14. It says, the word moved into the neighborhood. Friends, it's when you go there and your life is invested right there. This is why we're such big fans at Heart of Wyke of getting people involved in missions. You know, a week in a short-term missions thing is a better experience than never going. Every missionary I've ever known has told me that. Short-term missions can be a challenge, you get, uh, but that's another story. But a week is better than zero. Three months, a college semester, one month. Three months in another culture and living with compassion, suffering with, sharing life is better than a week. A year is better than three months. And then some among those will sense the lifelong calling to leave one culture, enter another, and to bring the hope of the gospel. Compassion, it's the character of the Lord. And so we see this all through the Old Testament that the Lord acts in history, acts in our lives, based on who he is. And he has revealed, and who he's revealed himself to be. Because God is compassionate, he acts in history, empowered by compassion, his mercy, his justice, his righteousness. He is at work to do that and to carry that on. Well, that's kind of the biblical framework, context, background. I want to now dig into this interesting story of Jesus. A man comes to him, an expert in the law, a seminary student. Sure, he's a graduate and well-trained. And he asks this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We know this story, don't we? Even among our uh, de-church friends and family, the good Samaritan is out there and recognized. Let's dig into it and get a sense of it. He comes to Jesus and he asks the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, and warning here, friends, this is a, a trick question. Now, any professor or teacher has used those before. You, you get somebody to think through something by asking a kind of a leading question that gives them a different light on it. And Jesus says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Underline that in your Bibles. We're going to come back to how do you read it? Now, the man answers correctly. He summarizes the teaching of the law from the law itself. And that's an important principle. Friends, we interpret the Bible by digging into the Bible. The scripture gives us insight. The portions that are more clear help us understand the ones that are less clear, if you will. In Deuteronomy 6, 5, it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. You see, this expert in the law, this seminary graduate, was just defining the law in the words the law gave him. Leviticus 19.18, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. You see, the best way to understand the law is from the law. So Jesus says, how do you read it? He answers correctly. But the very next verse, Luke 10.29, but the expert in the law wanted to justify himself. And suddenly we've moved from the brain to the heart, the motivation. 
the, the source of where the words or the behaviors will come. The expert in the law wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells a story. Oh, boy. Note to self. When you ask Jesus a question and he responds with a story, plan to be in the story somewhere. And you know the story that he tells them. Uh, a man is on a journey, and it would be like going from the Garden District in New Orleans through Holly Grove out to Metairie. I won't name the neighborhoods of Detroit or Chicago, but you can picture going from a place of safety through a place that's dangerous and lawless to another place. And along the way, he gets mugged. He's beaten up and left for dead, robbed. The Levite comes by, the priest comes by, they go over to the other, um, other side of the road because they don't want to be a part of this. They, don't, they probably have important things. They need to stay ritually clean. A lot of background there. But then comes this Samaritan. And the Samaritan acts different than the religious people. Jesus tells a story about a person who acted differently. He's from a hated ethnic group. He's faced with an inconvenient encounter. He takes a personal risk. You know, in the Thursday night email, I had a link to a story about a missionary doctor who found himself living and processing his own emotions like a good Samaritan. Very interesting. Personal risk. He had to make a costly commitment into the future. But Jesus says, that's what it looks like to be a neighbor. Well, think for a moment about this. The expert in the law said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what does the law say? How do you read it? And the expert in the law responds by giving behaviors. Love God, love neighbor. Behaviors to inherit eternal life. Is your gospel alarm going off? Behaviors to inherit eternal life. Jesus tells a story about two religious people who behave one way and another person who behaves differently. It's as if Jesus wants to say, yeah, just be a neighbor, just like the law says. And you know what the law means. It means compassion, and I'd say perfect compassion. Perfect compassion for everyone, everywhere, all the time. Go and do likewise. Think about that, friends. Let this call to perfect compassion for everyone, everywhere, all the time guide your life. Think about it. Be prepared. How do I inherit eternal life? Oh, well, perfect compassion for everyone, everywhere, all the time. How do we do that? See, here's the trick question. There is no behavior that will ever get you to eternal life. We can't be perfectly compassionate to everyone, everywhere, all the time. It's because of our own brokenness. It's because of who we are. I told you it was a trick question. Jesus 
tells the story of the Good Samaritan and he points to a person who has different actions. And so that should conclude us. This Samaritan has a different heart because all through the words of Jesus in the Old Testament and the New Testament, behaviors grow from the heart. What we see and what we say grows from what's deep within us. So let's go back a little further and ask, how does Jesus read the law? If the expert in the law with a seminary degree failed the test, got himself to a position that no person could live up to, how does Jesus read the law? Is there anything in the law that will help you to inherit eternal life? Well, if there is, I want to know so I can do it. Do you remember the Emmaus lesson in about 14 chapters? It's the same book, friends. It's the Gospel of Luke. After Jesus had died and raised, he meets two of his disciples. I'm wondering if either of those disciples had been there that morning with the expert in the law to remember it. He takes two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus and he instructs them in Luke 24, 27 about everything said about me in the law. And Moses, it's about me. How do you read the law? Jesus would say, all of it points to me. We've understood that the first, and it's in the Heidelberg Catechism, the first use of the law is not to instruct us on what to do to inherit eternal life. It's to show us that we're unable to live up to it, so we trust in Jesus. Nothing new here. But if it's rocking your world, let it. There's good news. The law and the prophets was about Jesus. That's what the expert in the law didn't know or understand. He thought the law was about earning, inheriting eternal life. Jesus will say in 14 chapters, it's about me. It's about me. It's as if, and I want to try to give a different answer. How would Jesus ask? How would you read the law? It might go something like this. Well, I see that Moses, who gave the law, was unable to keep it himself. He never entered into the promised land. There was breakdown all through his leading of Israel. They fell short of the law. I see that with Abraham in Genesis 15:6, that Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord credited it to Abraham as righteousness. So I see that in Moses, and the law, and the prophets. I see David, who writes in 1 Chronicles 16, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his mercy endures forever. Cry out, save us, O God, our Savior. David knew that he could not keep the law in such a way as to inherit eternal life but he looked to God as his savior. Isaiah 52, nine, the prophet, this is our God, we trusted in him and he saves us. This is the Lord, we trusted in him, the repeat, let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Where's the expression of the law as the key to inheriting eternal life? No, Jesus reads the law like this. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explains to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. He is the one. 
He is the one who brings salvation. And then bringing salvation, it's his indwelling Holy Spirit who works through us with his character. And what is his character? Compassion. What's the role of compassion? What's the role of the law? It's to guide us in how to live, to recognize and discern where is God at work in us, calling us to it. Friends, don't picture the Holy Spirit justifying your unforgiveness or your anger. No, what the Holy Spirit wants to do is bring forgiveness deep to your heart that you might extend forgiveness as, as only he can. Do you see the difference? The compassion we offer grows from the compassion we have received. I've found in my own journey of discipleship, navigating the pathways of my heart, that when I have this kind of deep simmering anger, I need to go back to the cross and ask, where am I not living fully into God's forgiveness and compassion for me? If I can't extend compassion to that person, where am I missing out on God's compassion to me? First establish that and then begin to live that out. Friends, the compassion we have for others, the compassion that the expert in the law pointed to grows out of the compassion that we receive from grace, God's good work. You know, shortly after Julian the backslider or Julian the deconstructionist died, another emperor came into power. And while he was being emperor, there was a monk in basically the area of Turkey, Gregory of Nyssa. He was the bishop after the death of Julian in that region, late 300s. And he preached a sermon from the book of Ecclesiastes. And here's part of what he has to say. Human beings are made in the image of God. They are therefore equally and inestimably precious and cannot belong to anyone. Late 300s. He's taking that concept we looked at last week, the image of God, imago dei. The character of God will have compassion. He sees through the institution of slavery. His sermon goes on to say, how much money did you get for selling the being shaped by God in the image of God? God said, let us make man in our own image and likeness. Whenever a human being is for sale, therefore, nothing less than the owner of the earth is led into the sale room. Has a scrap of paper, this written contract, and the counting out of money, has it deceived you into thinking yourself the master of the image of God in that person? What folly. Friends, we didn't live up to that calling. And you can look through history and see it fall short. I grew up in North Carolina. I saw the implications of turning from that biblical truth of the image of God, the value of every human being, and the brokenness that deceives us and leads to things like slavery. But here it is, the end of the third century, end of the 300s, fourth century. And already the people of God, filled with the compassion of God, are recognizing the corruption of an institution like that. See, having received the compassion of God in the gospel, he then equips us to live out that compassion everywhere he would send us. 
Jesus would say that the works of God are this. People would come and say, what must we do to do the works of God? Very similar question to the expert of the law. And Jesus would say, the works God require are that you believe. Placing your trust in the goodness of God and his grace in you will do more to alter your heart and an altered heart will lead to an altered behavior. That's the hope of the gospel. What must we do? We must turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. We must receive, and then having received, generously, graciously, give his character of compassion. Let's pray. Father, you have loved us while we did not deserve it. And in that love, Jesus went to the cross, was raised, has redeemed us from brokenness to life. We live in uh, a time between the times. That life is just beginning to emerge for many of us. We know that one day it will fully flourish and we yearn for that day. But for now, we thank you that you are at work and because of who you are, your character, that work we should expect over time to express this characteristic of compassion. Compassion, the mercy, the kindness. Like the early church that was known for its charity and kindness to the poor, to the abandoned child, to the dispossessed, to the socially, uh, in the social order, the, the, the lowest born. Father, renew in us the gospel that the seed of compassion might flourish and grow and move in power. I'm going to encourage you in this moment to just meditate on these words and this prayer. Uh, receive under the anointing music to, to um, enter into his grace.
Friends, perfect compassion for everybody, everywhere, all the time is not how you enter into eternal life. Entering into eternal life through what Jesus did at the cross begins God's work in us of that sort of compassion. That's the good news of the gospel. There's a wideness in God's mercy. I'm going to ask that we close. Uh, Justin, thank you for that opportunity to, again, reflect and let the Spirit move and guide you in how exactly this works out in your life. Thank you for listening. To learn how to get involved in our celebration community or how to support Hardawike Ministries, please visit us at hardawike.com.